Good morning. I'm very thankful to be with you here this Sunday. It's been just over a month since my last homily, and as I wrote this one, it became really clear that what I have for you this morning is kind of a part two <laughs> to the last one. Um, no worries if you missed it, though. We'll do a little review. In my last homily, we talked about how each of us is a priest. We looked at this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2 and talked about what priesthood might mean for us by looking at what priests did in Israel. They brought hope, shared resources, and invited or reconciled people into or back into community. So here I am again, just a bit more than a month later, sitting here, well, standing here. I decided to stand today. We're praying I don't fall off on either edge. Okay. Um, so here I am, and I'm wondering whether this idea has taken root in you over the course of the past month. Have you had an opportunity to seed hope, or share resources, or bring someone into deeper community? And if not, could it be that God is at work in your story even while you are not paying attention? So I want us to step into a moment of discernment together. So settle in, plant your feet on the floor, relax your body, close your eyes if you're comfortable, and when you're ready, ask the Holy Spirit to bring something to mind for you, either a time this month when you have ministered to someone, or a time when someone has ministered to you. Where have you seen an infusion of hope or resources or reconciliation in a moment of intentional interaction? because that is what priesthood is. So here we are, a room full of priests. I know this is a paradigm that can take some time to shift into. So how is priesthood feeling in your body? Is it more like a deep breath? Or is it a bit like holding your breath? Well, either way, Jesus had some things to say about priests. And as you may know, he was rarely super positive about the religious leaders of his day. While he was shockingly kind, patient, and compassionate to the outcasts around him, he pointed some pretty rough rebukes at those leaders who were making them feel like outsiders in the first place. Now, if you're like me, when you read passages where Jesus is criticizing these leaders, you may jump on the bandwagon thinking like, <laughs> what a bunch of idiots. <laughs> They're so funny. But if every believer is a priest, then perhaps every believer would do well to spend some energy learning from these stories. To treat them as sort of a what not to do guide. Which is why I've titled this homily, Let's Not Do This. Because in spite of how silly and even dumb we may think that these religious men of the day were, it's amazing how fast we can find ourselves in this picture, if we honestly look. In today's passage, Jesus is taking them to task for placing burdens on the shoulders of others without being willing to help them. It seems to me that he's sharing a bit of a rant with his disciples, and true to form, he's doing it loudly enough for the crowd to hear. They're probably like, shh. He's saying... The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do what they teach you and follow it. And you can kind of imagine the Pharisees nodding like, 
thanks, Jesus, yeah. But then he continues, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. Now, this idea of burden carries a lot of meaning here. The phrasing comes from the practice of loading up animals for travel. So the burden is bound up and then laid on the shoulder of the beast. And if the burden was too unwieldy or too heavy, it was not only considered cruel, but also dangerous. Because if that animal collapsed during the journey, those travelers were going to be making some tough decisions. But this idea also layers right onto another key idea, the concept of a yoke. So in agriculture, a yoke is a wooden harness that's used to connect two animals to help them carry a burden. Now, sometimes they'd intentionally yoke a small ox to a more experienced ox to help train and strengthen them. In Jesus's lifetime, rabbis traveled with disciples, and their disciples took on their yoke. The yoke that they were taking on had to do with how that particular teacher interpreted the law. By being part of their school, these disciples were agreeing to take on certain beliefs, rules, and restrictions. So if you liked Hillel's interpretations, for example, you'd be part of the school of Hillel or the house of Hillel. In this way, they were binding themselves to their rabbi, sort of like a less experienced ox, so that they could be trained in the way of that spiritual leader. Before we move on from this concept, I want you to know that the word yoke was not only reserved for cattle and religious folk. A yoke was also used in slavery. At times, a yoke was used as an apparatus to make carrying heavy burdens easier, but yokes were also used in the transporting and restricting movement of the enslaved. So while a yoke may be helpful and even make a burden easier to bear, it was also used to dehumanize, humiliate, and establish power over other human beings. And while we rarely hear about this aspect of yoking in sermon settings, I think it's important to know that the crowd this day would have been aware of the inherent power dynamics of a yoke, and that the religious leaders sometimes used their influence in ways that stripped people of dignity and autonomy. So before we continue, I want to take a moment and consider this together. When you think about your story of faith, is there a season in which you felt especially burdened by the teachings and ideas around you? If the answer is yes, take note of what came up for you. And if your answer is no, well, that is fantastic. Love that for you. Now, if you've been wandering around church world for any length of time, you may also recognize these ideas about a religious yoke and burden from dozens of sermons around Jesus' statement that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Jesus' statement that his burden is light, way back in chapter 11, is in direct contrast with the way religious leaders of the day were weighing down their followers, which Jesus is calling out here in chapter 23. But he is not saying that his way is not a yoke or a burden. In fact, over and over, he says, you have heard it said this, but I say, and that is a signal that he is offering a new way of thinking about scripture and how we practice faith in the world. 
he is offering to lead his own disciples in the way of Jesus, in the school of Jesus. But his way is a bit simpler, it's a bit lighter. When Jesus was pressed about what the most important commandment was, he answered with a lot of clarity. And his answer gives us a lens for discernment. This is the yoke that we've taken on. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So as we try to interpret and apply the rest of what Jesus said, the rest of scripture, this is the lens that we can pass it through. This is the yoke that we have taken on. But though Jesus has offered us this lighter burden, the church has added to his teachings in much the same way that religious leaders were doing at the time of this story. In fact, the idea of Jewish rabbis and their schools is not unlike our idea of denominations. Theoretically, we are all working from the same book, more or less. But we have very different interpretations from church to church and denomination to denomination, right? I wish y'all could have been there when I was 15 and asked my grandfather, a Catholic deacon, if he had ever spoken in tongues. <laughs> it was not a great conversation for me. There was sputtering. <laughs> but it was a real question, I was curious. It's in there. And here's the thing. <laughs> the hills that the church dies on are not necessarily strongly correlated with what the Bible prioritizes. <laughs> Scripture is chock full of teachings against greed and pride and about caring well for the poor. And yet, somehow, the church is not generally known for being generous or humble or appreciating systematic care for the poor. Instead, our religious leaders are constantly embroiled in conflict over interpretations around phrases that are mentioned far less, if at all, in the Bible. Critical race theory and homosexual and Democrat and Republican come right to mind for me. You guys, I have run out of fingers to count the number of people here in Texas who have told me that real Christians vote Republican. And you know what that is? That is another homily entirely. And almost definitely an ill-advised one. But aside from that, it is an interpretation. It's the school of, let's say, Franklin Graham. If each of us is a priest, let's not do this. Let's not baptize our preferences and make them essential truths. Let's not be priests who set up complicated regulations based on vague scriptures and then tell people loudly that the Bible is clear. And what we mean is, I am sure that my interpretation is the only right one. Get in line behind me. I'm important. Personally, I'd rather not create a school of Kimberly. When members of our community step up to this little stage that they might someday fall off of, <laughs> um, we are not laying down a law. If you disagree with me today, you will still safely belong in this community. And thankfully, so will I. When we step up here and share our thoughts on a Sunday morning, we are not uploading program into the system. This is not the Borg. That was just for you. 
We're stepping into communal discernment with you. This morning I'm saying, this is what I'm seeing. This is how it's shaping me. Do you find it helpful? Does it resonate to you? It may, or it may not. The more important question is, what is God saying to you about this? What is God saying to us as a community? And figuring out how we live this out, it's a burden we can shoulder together. But it's not just the burden itself that Jesus is calling these leaders out on. Not only do they weigh people down under impossible standards, they themselves don't even adhere to their own rules. And they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to help move the burden. Imagine asking someone to carry your burden with their whole body and not being willing to even use your finger to help steady it. It creates quite a picture here, and that picture is one of self-importance and of a power dynamic. These leaders chose the rules, enforced the rules, made them the requirement for being loved and cared for in the context of community that they ran, and then had the audacity to exempt themselves from following those very rules. They were powerful enough to either outsource the burden or hide the evidence or rationalize their own behaviors. Thank God we never see this with Christian leaders. <laughs> Honestly, I could fill a slide deck with Christian leaders who have exempted themselves from practicing what they preach in life-ruining ways, some of whom I have personally known and worked with. But it would take all of our time and leave us feeling sad and maybe ill. But just like today, just like in Jesus' day, Christian leaders continue to make rules that determine who is in and who is out, who has the power and influence and who doesn't. And whenever that is the case, we have found ourselves inside a bounded set. A bounded set is a concept from social set theory which looks at different ways that we gather groups of people. And in my experience, most of the churches here in America are bounded sets. In a bounded set, the community is defined by its edges, but the ideological center is hazy. And this is something that Wei has talked about, so you might recognize this. You know who's in and out based on strict qualifying factors. Sometimes these are clearly communicated, as is, in the, as is the case in, say, like a fraternity or a branch of the army, or a branch of the military, like the army. There are contracts and pledges and dress codes in those instances. Often, though, these rules are implied and enforced by social pressure. Imagine a moment in which you walk into a room and it's clear that you're not dressed appropriately for this room. The conversation halts for a moment and people stare before they share a look with someone next to them and then they turn away from you. And in that instant, it is very clear that you are on the outside looking out, looking into this group. The things that make up the boundary in a bounded set tend to be visible. And that is because the power and the perceived safety come from who you keep out. And it's easier to create social pressure where infractions can be seen. Let me give you an example. In 2006, Ben and I founded a nonprofit publishing company and started a literary journal, specifically because I was incensed about the state of Christian publishing. I had been writing about my experiences teaching in inner-city Chicago, and doing ministry there, and had received feedback that I would have a very hard time finding a market for it. The gap has closed a bit in recent years, but in the early 2000s, secular publishers often would not publish anything that talked about faith. 
And the Christian publishers required you to so drastically sanitize your story to make it safe that it would hardly even be true anymore. At the time, the Christian Booksellers of America, or the CBA, policed what could be sold in Christian bookstores. So if they say your book is out, it's out. And those were still booming. Bookstores were still a thing. <laughs> and their rules were insane. And some were to be expected, like no cussing and no sex, but some were surprising. One of them was that there could be no visible sin that goes unpunished in the story. <laughs> if the bad guys don't get their comeuppance immediately, it was not a Christian book. Just a little bit different than real life, though, right? Anyway, the CBA is a bounded set. And for the record, the CBA standards would mean that the Bible is out and C.S. Lewis is out. But of course, they were grandfathered in. <laughs> but those exceptions were few and far between and generally reserved for dead white men. In 2016, Jen Hatmaker made statements affirming LGBTQ marriage, and within days, Christian bookstores were removing every book she had ever written from the shelves. We are talking about a best-selling author ousted immediately and viciously because she dared to disagree with the traditional interpretations of the evangelical yoke. If we read the Gospels through this social set lens, you'll see the bounded set pretty easily. Jesus was constantly criticized by his religious community for what he ate and drank and who he was friends with, for being poor and homeless, and of course he criticized and disagreed publicly with the religious elite. And as we know, his ousting from the bounded set was public and deadly. He didn't make the cut then. And let's be honest, Jesus wouldn't make the cut in most of our churches either. So I want to look through this lens of social set theory at how the priests of our day have laid burdens on the backs of churchgoers as they have built bounded sets around their own interpretations. So let's start with the obvious. We've already touched upon it with the Jen, Jen Hatmaker story. First, our churches have put forth and enforced a very problematic sexual ethic. This could easily be an entire teaching series. But for today, I want you to know that almost all of the traditional sexual ethic that has been taught by American churches is based on interpretation, not scripture. Yes, there are clobber verses that are used to silence and cast out women, divorced individuals, and our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, but they rarely hold up when taken as part of a lar the larger story of scripture. And these rules have largely been used to shame, exclude, and scapegoat already marginalized communities while propping up the powerful. If we view these interpretations through the yoke of Jesus, then it's pretty clear that love for our neighbor is rarely at the center. In fact, they've caused such harm. The fight for biblical marriage is full of interpretive boundaries. The idea that you need to get married in a church and have a certificate is more cultural than biblical, for example. In fact, in the Old Testament, it was less a ceremony and more they went into the tent and were married. <laughs> Rapists were pushed, to, pushed by religious leaders to marry their victims because they'd already married them, essentially. And of course, women were considered property, so marriage was really a contract about her, not by her. Which is why polygamy was A-OK -okay for men, but women with multiple partners got killed. Biblical marriage, folks. It is not for the faint of heart. Can we talk for a moment about purity culture? 
This movement of the church created a wildly unhealthy sexual ethic and then called that interpretation holy. The idea that men cannot control their urges around women and that women should bear the responsibility for their choices is devastating to both men and women. It's not holy, and beyond that, it sets the stage for rape culture. Teenagers growing up in purity culture are told that sex is shameful and wrong and dangerous and will ruin you, especially if you're a woman. But if you want sex badly enough, just get married. Because then sex will magically be okay and shame and fear will instantly dissipate. <laughs> Throw in a book that tells readers not to kiss until their wedding ceremony, but then expect sex on that very same night, and you've really set the stage for trauma, but let's insist we call that love. <laughs> Married women, your new job is to look sexy for your husband, or he will stray, and that will be your fault but not so sexy that anyone else thinks so, because then you might cause those other men to stumble. Oh, and now your job is to have sex even when you don't want to, because otherwise you're a bad wife. Make lots of babies so we can rinse and repeat this nonsense. The idea that we can cast sex as the big bad wolf in every story and then flip a switch at the marriage altar to make it the very requirement for holiness is madness and not at all informed by what we know about neurobiology or trauma or human sexuality. <laughs> But it's a great way to control people. And it offers the religious majority a way to focus attention on an area that they themselves don't struggle to navigate much all while exempting themselves of the requirements when they do. We were very close with a couple who lived together as roommates and eventually got married. He had grown up in the church and she was a new Christian and so they decided they wanted to honor each other by waiting until they got married. The church we all attended refused to officiate their wedding or even let them use the space because they were cohabitating. It's a perfect example of a bounded set because they cared about the visible thing that people could see, cohabitation, more than the thing they were worried the living together might lead to, the relations, which weren't even happening yet. <laughs> it was crazy-making for her especially, and it drove a deep wedge between them and the church. And of course, this extends to gender as well. We have been fed all sorts of stories about biblical manhood and womanhood, and it is harmful to anyone who doesn't fit the mold perfectly. And right now, Christians are so threatened around shifts in how we process gender that they are aggressively working to legislate freedoms away from the trans community. And they are doing this in the name of Jesus, who said, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. This is a profoundly marginalized group. The National Library of Medicine reports 41% of transgender individuals in the United States have attempted suicide. 41%. Look at what we are doing to the least of these just to platform the powerful. Let's not do this. I'm not saying that our sexuality isn't something we need to navigate with discernment. I thought, crap, is that my phone? That might have been mine. <laughs> I was like, Olivia, help! <laughs> There is something gorgeous and sacred in how we are designed by God, not just for procreation, but for connection via sexuality. And I don't believe we should be flippant about it. But I also don't think we should cheapen it by setting it up as a means for control 
or as a wall to determine who's in and who's out of our community. But if we're not careful, we may throw out the baby with the bathwater here. One of the main tenets of the Satanic Bible is do as thou wilt and that shall be the whole of the law. And for hundreds of reasons, that's not what we want here either, right? Too often when we deconstruct, we don't bother to reconstruct into that void. And that can lead to a whole host of new problems. We have freedom in Christ. But like Paul says in Corinthians, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. So really, in every area of our lives, we can and must ask the Holy Spirit to help us figure out how the story of faith should shape and guide us. These are complex conversations, so let's hold them with care. I want to pause here and recognize that it's possible that some of you are feeling like what I'm saying here is very dangerous. And if that's you, then I want you to know that that's okay. Once again, I'm just a person here at Vox looking at scripture and sharing my thoughts. And I'm inviting you to challenge some of the narrative that you may have inherited as biblical truth. But when you do that, you may or may not land in the same place as I do. And I welcome that. Vox welcomes that. It's safe to disagree here. Okay, let's put another wall on our bounded set church. Where the problematic sexual ethic is on the surface and in the news and part of what we're known for, the next troublesome interpretation that I want to look at is misplaced religious responsibility. And this one is a bit sneakier. Not only do we have these heavy criteria, but the prevailing story is that it's our job to police and even transform other people on behalf of the church. And this leads to relational harm from the countless instances of inviting someone to coffee and then surprise attacking them with something that's out of alignment with the yoke that you've taken on <laughs> to parents disowning their own children. And it leads to larger societal harm too from policies that strip individuals of their rights to holy wars like the one we are all witnessing. In 2014, World Vision announced a change in policy that would allow them to hire employees who had been legally married to someone of the same sex. Christians lost their mind and dumped their child sponsorship donations by the thousands immediately. Over 10,000 kids suddenly without support over just two days. At which point, World Vision reversed course and restored their morality clause, excluding anyone in same-sex marriage from serving the poor via their organization. This organization's mission is to fight global poverty. But we made it clear that it was also their job to police their staff's sexual ethic. On a worldwide stage, the church made two statements quite loudly. One, we will kick you to the curb if you disagree about the wrong things, and two, we don't care about the poor nearly as much as we care about power and influence. This is bounded set shenanigans at its core. The key boundary you have to stay inside if you want to keep your place in a bounded set community is to bind others to the boundaries of the powerful. When Pharisees cast someone out of the temple community, they also cast out anyone who continued to associate with them. This is why people are afraid to bake a cake for someone they don't 100% agree with. If they think you approve of something that your pastor wouldn't, then you're both in trouble. Folks, it was never our job to transform anyone. The Holy Spirit is the author of transformation. 
In Corinthians, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the growth. We are supposed to be known by our radical love for one another, but Christians are known for being a profoundly judgmental and mean demographic who will invite you into community and then use it to manipulate your choices. Let's not do this here. Now, there are a lot of interpretive walls that we could slide into this last slot, like individualism or the American dream. But I am going to finish with a bind that, of the expectation that Christians display a troublesome disregard for self. When Jesus talks about his yoke, he prefaces it by saying, Come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Jesus wants something different for us. To lift the burden, to set us up to be rested, and well, he is here for our wholeness. We've talked about how Jesus' yoke involves loving the Lord and loving your neighbor as yourself. And I remember reading this passage in college and thinking to myself, that might be a real problem for my neighbor. <laughs> See, this is only good news if you love yourself in the first place. Self-regard is baked in here. It's the, it's the greatest, second greatest commandment. And yet, churches have invested a lot of energy in getting people to feel that they are inherently unlovable. So much so that, God, that the God of the universe has no other choice but to punish them eternally. But good news, it turns out he's willing to kill his son instead. So now they're still terrible, but they can get into heaven. This theology is called penal substitution atonement. Because the wages of sin are death and someone has to pay the penalty and appease a God whose wrath is unbending. I once knew a pastor who had two little girls, a four and a one-year-old, and the four-year-old had come up to him and said something like, Daddy, I am so great. I really love myself. And this man gave a sermon that Sunday around how he had corrected his four-year-old and explained that she was sinful and there was badness inside of her and that only Jesus was good. And I sat in that sanctuary and I didn't have the words yet, but I felt in my heart, I felt my heart breaking for this little girl, this girl who is designed by a God who loves her deeply and knows every great thing about her and who delights in her. This girl who may have some trouble knowing that she is beloved by God down the road because of the love that was shown to her that day. Let's not do this. Let's not do this to our little girls or our neighbors or ourselves. Now again, some of you might be thinking, whoa, whoa, did she just toss the cross? Are we venturing now into a Christless Christianity? No, we are not. I am not. A lot of people buy this interpretation of the cross and continue to force-feed it to new generations. But it's not the only interpretation. It's a yoke. Yes, the Bible does say that the wages of sin are death. And yes, I believe Christ did die for us, but not because we are inherently unlovable. I believe he came here set on redeeming and restoring us because he loves us. If we think of sin more like an infection and less like a crime, then what we need is a cure, not a punishment. And he had it. 
Some theologians call this medical atonement. And the story of a God who loves us so much that he's willing to do whatever it takes to save us is far more interesting, is far better news than one of a God who begrudgingly lets us into heaven even though we're terrible and unworthy. And if we can see this, we can see that we do deserve love and care, and it's not sinful to need care or to request care or to regard ourselves through the eyes of a God who is delighting in us right now, in this very moment, in this building. Come to me, he says, and I will give you rest. So let's reflect. What burdensome expectations for yourself or others might God be calling you to release? All right, so there are some problems with a bounded set, and there are definitely some problems with blindly accepting the prevailing interpretations of Scripture without thinking through who they benefit. But how do we, as we rethink and deconstruct and get curious, avoid creating our own bounded set with different rules? Well, there is another option, of course, and it's called the centered set. In a centered set, the ideological center is strong, but there is no outer boundary. No one is in or out. But influence comes from two things. It comes from proximity to the center and movement toward the center. My friend Deb Hirsch talks about this through the lens of the Australian outback, where cattle farmers need to keep their cattle grouped in a certain area. She says that some of the farmers, especially if they're new, do this by building fences around their acreage. But these ranches are often quite large, and putting a strong fence around 10,000 acres is a bit of a challenge and very expensive. It's constantly breaking in one way or the other. So the farmers who do this spend a lot of their energy maintaining the fence, and very little of their energy taking care of the cattle. Does that sound familiar? But smart farmers have a much simpler strategy. They drill wells in strategic places. The Australian outback is a hot place without copious amounts of water. So if they create easy sources for water, the cows will stay near to the well. They may wander off for a bit, but eventually they'll get thirsty, so they'll come back. And that creates a predictable radius for that cattle to stay within without any need for a fence. Do you remember that Jesus says that he is living water? When we trust Jesus to be the well in our community, then we can do a lot less policing of who is in and who is out, right? If Jesus really is good news, then even when we wander away, we will feel that distance and turn back towards the well in our own time. The Holy Spirit will serve as our GPS, nudging us back towards Jesus. When we operate this way, the questions that guide us shift. In a bounded set, we're asking, Who do we need to attract and who do we need to keep out? How do we control people for their own good? Who is the right person, the one priest, to determine the rules that we will all live by? But in a centered set, we can ask some different questions. Do we really trust that Jesus is good? Is the story we are telling about Jesus good news? Are we reflecting his values and his love in a way that points people toward the center? Do I trust the Holy Spirit to help me discern and interpret how scripture relates to my life? 
Am I willing to sift through ideas being discussed even from the front of the church to discern what I need to let go of and what I need to latch onto this morning? But sometimes people prefer a bounded set because it's actually easier in some ways to live by and enforce rigid legalism, to outsource our thinking and discernment. It feels familiar to us if we grew up in church and we kind of know how to navigate those waters. The quick fix of putting on a mask before you walk into the doors of a church is often easier than letting the Holy Spirit transform us from within. But it's also kind of cheaper. And it rarely leads towards living water, toward redemption and renewal. Vox is in a stage of imagining and dreaming and rethinking how we make up the church together, how we as a priesthood will function here in East Austin. We've seen our share of bounded set priests. Let's not do that here. Let's imagine together what it looks like to be centered set priests. Let's notice how much more restful it is when we compare it to keeping a white-knuckled grasp on our family and friends to personally engaging and scaring our people into good behavior. Let's relax into how much softer it is to let God be God and just point people his way. Do you trust the well? Because if the living water is the real deal, it will be enough. I don't have to lock someone in or threaten them with expulsion because it's not my manipulation that's going to keep them here. It's the love at the center. That's the sustenance. That's the beating heart that keeps community alive. Let's pray. Jesus, be enough for us. Help us to live in your way and to do so as priests who tell a story of love and point people toward you. And Lord, we are weary. Help us to accept the rest that you offer. Amen.